Yvette Brown from Awkwardness and Grace. I'm a white mom raising two black boys, and if you feel squeamish talking about race, you're not alone. Join me, parents, and professionals as we have conversations about race and the awkwardness and grace of it all. everyone. This is Yvette from Awkwardness and Grace. Today I have my friend Meredith here. She is a white mom with two teenage children. Is Jack a teenager? 13. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And I bet she has a little bit to say about that. (laughs) Oh yeah. Welcome to Awkwardness and Grace. Thank you. Happy to be here. What I usually like to ask is, what kind of things keep you awake at night? Uh, About race in particular? Race and and kids and parenting. Well, like what we were talking about, just sort of managing teenagers and trying to help them, you know, turn into the adults that you want them to be, to be respectful and understanding and compassionate and at the same time knowing that they're going to stumble and fall and make mistakes and try things out and experiment with different behaviors and different personalities and different substances and just trying to help them navigate without at a, at a time when they're um, taking a step away from their parents and... And our relationship is changing dramatically where they're really separating. It's a big challenge. It is. Oh, my goodness. Letting go. Letting go, but enough to be close enough so that they feel like when they need to touch back, you're there. But letting letting go enough, letting them, giving them a long enough leash to become who they're meant to be. Yeah. You recently did some diversity training. Let's talk about that. A little bit. Sure. First of all, I mean, I think as a white person going in, you know, in this day and age, it's time to listen. It's time to reflect. It's time to hear what other people are saying. And of course, we all have opinions and, but I found like in the diversity training that we did, it's been it's it's more than one training it's been a process our whole company is going through a diversity equity inclusion change Uh, we've incorporated into our mission Um, we've incorporated into our hiring practices we've even incorporated into um, and especially into grant making and work with our um, I work for a foundation and so we work with um, a lot of organizations and looking at different organizations diversity practices and how um, and how do we lift up some of the voices that have traditionally been underrepresented in our work to protect the environment and climate so that part of it has you know just sort of structurally things have changed but as a part of that we have done a lot of training where it's a lot about sharing experiences that people have had their personal experiences and I think that for me as a white person, it's more about trying to listen and understand how 
other people's experiences ha- you know have shaped who they are and how other people's experiences confronting racism or exclusion or just being in an underrepresented group has um, what that's like. And I think as a white person, it's very difficult to understand the privilege that I've enjoyed and my husband and all of us, you know, we thought we, we were raised to think we were, you know, superstars and we got that job because we were top of the heap or whatever it was, but actually there's a whole candidate pool who never even got an interview. And so the competition was easier for us. And it's not gonna be that way for my kids. When I think about them and their, what they're gonna be like in the workforce, I'm hopeful that the world is changing and it's gonna be much more merit-based or, or not even merit-based, because that's, again, benefits people who have the means to have a formal, what we consider a, you know, sort of a proper education at a university that's recognized or whatever, but there's lots of, as I've come to understand, there's, or appreciate more, that there's so many different ways of being educated and that are equally valid. So, you know, the world's going to be different for my kids. And so I think about that a lot as when I'm going through the training and just mostly I'm trying to listen and try to understand how my privilege has, I'm grateful for the privilege I've had in my life, and now it's time to let everyone enjoy those privileges. You know, the title of this podcast, Awkwardness and Grace, it, and there have been some really awkward moments where in our diversity training where people have talked about, like for example, one of the exercises was like, sort of they had a list of like, traditionally included groups and traditionally excluded groups. And, you know, I'm, I'm in the traditionally included, almost every one of them, you know, Christian, white. Um, the only one I'm not in traditionally included is as being a woman. And we all, you know, of course, have lived with sexism and, and I, I know what that feels like, but I don't think that the sexism I've experienced is anything even remotely close to the racism that other people have experienced in their lives. And so there definitely have been moments where in our diversity training where it was, it was sort of like, you know, share a, an exercise where you're supposed to share a, a moment where you felt, felt excluded. And, and I don't want to share my moments because they're so trivial compared to what other people have gone through. And so there have definitely been some awkward moments like that where it's better just to not share and be quiet and listen and, you know, kind of understand where sort of how your experience fits in with the world. The way that you understand other people's experiences is not by sharing your own, but more just by listening and trying to understand. Not by comparing it to your own, I guess, is what I mean to say. Right. Yes, that's true. Although I have to say that if you look at that experience that you had, then you can take that feelings of what you experienced and try to amplify it to have empathy maybe towards someone that's had a much more difficult experience. Oh, definitely. You know, I just, I think it's, there's a lack of empathy in so many levels in our country right now that uh, if we could just tap into one little part that, oh, okay. If we tap into that, I can understand a little bit. Never the magnitude usually, but at least there's a starting point. 
before you started the diversity training, what was your general awareness towards racism and white privilege? I don't think that you can really understand it unless you've really experienced it. And so in that way, I feel like I'm cognizant of the fact that I've never really experienced it. And I don't really know what it's like. However, I think that I understood racism a lot more before the training than I did understand white privilege and the kind of the fallout for people that are excluded, just kind of the vicious cycle where exclusion in one context leads to another context leads to another context and that there's this historical impact. And I think I, I understand it a little bit, but I, I feel like I have a deeper understanding now of how, you know, just like using the example of the job interview, you know, that's like something that you just, I, I don't think I've really appreciated before. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, I never, I actually haven't thought about that either, that there is a pool of people that we probably don't even realize are just being excluded just because of their name, even. Yeah. On a resume. And everything from getting into college, you know, getting into the college you get, you get into and, and all of that, every thing, every accomplishment that I've had has been, there's been a whole group of people that were just as well qualified, maybe even more so who were never even allowed to apply. And so I think about that a lot, the white privilege piece. And I know it's so much deeper than that and there's so many more other implications, but like that for me is a touchstone as to how I can think about like putting myself in the sort of in the ecosystem of, yeah. And I think with my, my children, I mean, first of all, it's so challenging to have any conversation with a teenager about anything, especially about something that's deeper thought and you really have these little short bursts where you have an opportunity to connect with them. It's usually in the car. And usually, and it's not like I come with my little, you know, script and my set of questions where I think about, oh, I should have asked her that question, you know, or like sometimes we're just sitting there like, and I don't know, even know what to say. So we're not having the conversations I wish we were having, but I'm not, I also feel like, Hopefully there's a lot of time to continue to have those conversations and it's not just one conversation anyway. It's a, it's, it's modeling and it's how you live your life and it's the little things that come up and how you react to them. Do you wish that you had this training earlier so that you could possibly talk with them earlier? Yeah, I mean, I think that the thing for me that, it, that I'm still struggling with as a, and the parenting is kind of how to have the conversation how to initiate it. You know, a few years ago when the Black Lives Matter movement was coming up and there was all this, the Freddie Green uh, incident, and of course there were lots of others that was being covered in the news, and there were sort of little windows, like those were, because they'd hear stuff, and that would be a little window to, to have a more full conversation. So I guess I wish that I had, you know, a little playbook that I could have referred to, like how about starting like starting the conversation explain it this way or just like what you're doing with this podcast is like having a a resource to help me navigate those difficult conversations but I also I think you know kids ask questions and they're they're really asking it on the surface like well what happened to that guy 
what you know are the police bad guys or the good guys they want really black and white answers and the truth is it's not that simple so you try to explain that gray area but i do wish that i'd it's not so much that i had that i wish that i had the training although i think the training's been helpful for me personally and understanding more deeply it's just it's more like i wish i had sort of some questions to prompt you know, like a couple of questions written down, like, well, what do you think about this? Or I don't even, I still don't even really know what those questions are. That's, that'll be, that should be your next project. <laughs> it's an ongoing project. Oh my goodness. Do they know that you took diversity training at work? Actually, I'm not sure if they do. That would be a really great talk- way to start a conversation about really it. I haven't talked about it too much. I've talked to them a little bit about it, but not too much. It's hard to know what the opening is, how to, how to start it, how to start that conversation. What do you recommend? Well, most of ours are done over a meal. I would just tell them about my day. You know, I took this diversity training today and I learned this. I had no idea about this situation. I had no idea how privileged I was. And they're going, oh, privilege? What does that mean? I'm not privileged. I have to take out the trash. <laughs> I know. So, funny. so you, you know, that's an opportunity to open up. And if you initiate a conversation, then they might follow that lead at another point. Yeah. Well, we've talked with our kids a lot about privilege, but more in the context of um, economic privilege and more in the context here, living here in San Francisco and, and seeing homeless people since, you know, they were toddlers on the street. And so talking a lot about privilege in, the, in that sense. And more about poverty and less about race and also have talked to them as we've traveled about our privilege being Americans compared to other countries and how lucky they are that they were born into this family and not some other family that was totally in a different situation. So we've talked, I've talked to them a lot about that kind of economic privilege, but it hasn't been, the racial dimension hasn't really, hasn't come up. Yes, I think when you apply to colleges, maybe those conversations might come up too. When mm-hmm. if you go to colleges, you might see the diversity there. Well, applying to high schools, I mean, or high schools, yeah. I mean, we've definitely talked about like you know, it's hard to get into high school. There's a lot of competition. It shouldn't be hard to get into high school. You should just be able to go to your local school and go to great education. Unfortunately, not in San Francisco. Not in San Francisco, it's pretty pretty mixed there, but. I think Madeline, we, we did have some conversations about, you know, sort of how you have to present yourself to, to be able to, you know, show what's different about you. Because just being a pretty white girl from a nice family isn't really going to cut it. In this day and age, they want people that have a more interesting story. So what is your story? What is your interesting story that's going to distinguish you from other candidates? That's true. I mean, San Francisco has a lot of pretty well-rounded white people in it. So you really do have to kind of find a unique voice for yourself and share it. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's true for colleges too. And sadly, I mean, I think that people who've had harder lives than my kids have, they have something to talk about. They have overcome adversity. My kids haven't really hardly ever faced any adversity. I mean, you can talk about whatever, you know, the, their trivial times where they have, but it's not like what some kids live with every day. 
we have talked about privilege in that way and about how lucky they are, try to get them to appreciate how lucky they are. And I think they do. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's not a far leap to then take it to the next level about how part of that privilege has been bestowed on them because of the color of their skin, not just their economic status. You're right. I, I think you can, yeah, moving right into the color of your skin is very easy. It's not even a leap. It's mm-hmm. just a transition. Yeah. You know, included in this economic privilege that you have, there's another one that aspect that you may not even have known of, and it's the fact that you're white. Well, it's so funny. My friend, her daughter came home from, I guess she's in eighth grade now, and she's like, oh my God, mom, today they taught us how to be racist. And of course they weren't teaching her how to be racist, but they, they learned about racism at her school. And this is a girl who has a white mom and a Filipino dad, and she has darker skin and kinky hair, so she could easily be um, black or she looks more like a black person or a, a dark-skinned person. So, you know, she never crossed her mind that the color, that she was being judged by the color of her skin. She had never encountered that. And so to learn about racism in eighth grade to her was like teaching her classmates how to be racist, how to take notice of the color of people's skin and judge accordingly. That's fascinating. Wasn't that... I mean, it's horrifying. I mean, and in the one sense, it's It like, is horrifying. In the one sense, it's wonderful that she hasn't experienced racism. To me, that was like, oh, this is, that's great that she's never experienced it. And it also was really telling about how, as adults, I think that we need to think about how we talk about it. It's so that someone doesn't walk away feeling like, oh, this is how people behave. I'm sure that who's ever teaching it isn't trying to say this is how you should behave, but maybe there are, you know, maybe somebody might walk away like, oh, it's okay to do this because it's been done before. No, that's a really good point. I never even considered that, that it would be misconstrued or misinterpreted. Learning how to be a racist. I mean, because you are kind of just... I mean, if you're going to teach someone about a race, racism, you're going to describe and define what it is. And if you don't even know what it is, then how do you, how do you deconstruct that and say, oh, this is something I shouldn't do? But Yeah, it's kind of like this is a mistake that people made in the past. So I don't know. I think that the way that you talk about it has to be very much cognizant of the fact that the audience may have never considered this before. Mm -hmm. Very good point. The audience needs to know what you're talking about. They are part of the equation of the conversation. And I think that like when you and I have this, like the conversation we're having, we know what each other knows about racism, you know, in a certain way, at some level set. But for kids, you don't necessarily know what they know about it. Maybe they've been fairly sheltered from it as this girl had been. I don't hmm. know. Interesting. Wow, I'm going to really like think a lot about of this time, one. A lot of times people say, oh, kids are colorblind. In a certain way, like kids today are colorblind. I hear, I hear people say that sometimes. In a certain way, I think in a way they are. I mean, at least in the community that I've, I've grown up when I, I don't think that there's been a ton of outwardly racist things said in front of children. That's not to say that people haven't 
you know, in other ways, in little small ways, maybe expressed a certain amount of racism. I think that maybe some kids are kind of colorblind. On the other hand, they're probably not because it's so pervasive in our culture that we don't even realize it's happening when it is happening. Mm-hmm. They're picking up messages and- messages and little stuff that we wouldn't even maybe even perceive as being simple things like having doctors that are white or teachers that are white. My kids' doctors have all been white except for one. And I never thought about it mm-hmm. because that's what I grew up with. You know, so well, it's not like you pick them because they're white. It just happened no. by chance. Right. I, yeah, I chose a doctor and I, I, and they were white. They just so happened to be. It was literally out of the directory right. when the very first pediatrician but they see doctors in their authority as white. Uh-huh. Those are the examples they have. On the other hand, living here in San Francisco, I mean, you know, they've had lots of Asian doctors, teachers, you know, other authority people that are of many different races, but there's not that many African Americans in San Francisco. So we did have an African American pediatrician, but it was when the kids were little babies. Yeah, all those subtle things. Now, as between you and Brad, do you have conversations? Yeah. I mean, you mean about parenting? Mm -hmm. We have more conversations about what's happening in the world, like, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement, or more in, like, the political context about what's happening with the politics and the different, and particularly within the Democratic Party. And so we've talked about those kinds of changes and different types of voters and different candidate strategies to attract different types of voters. And, you know, of course, we were so thrilled when Barack Obama was elected president. Like that, to me, that felt like, like that was like a a emotional moment that I was so happy that America elected um, an African-American man. That was, it just still brings tears to my eyes that, you know, we... And I and um, and I hope that someday we'll elect a woman president. I am hoping so too. Although I'm not, <laughs> I'm not sure it's going to be this year. But you know, when Hillary was running, you know, I would get teary with my daughters. Like, do you know what this could mean? You know, what this means for women. We've we had some conversations about a lot of conversations with her about sexism. But it's the same, it's it's a little bit of the same thing where she hasn't really she's experienced some sexism, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. You go from the the comfort of your home and the safety of your nest to the real world, and you think you're completely independent and mature enough to handle it, and then you run into these incidents, and you it, it really throws you. I mean, mm-hmm. I do remember a few times experiencing that when I was in my 20s and in the workplace. Mm-hmm. Kind of astounded a little bit. When there was the Judge Kavanaugh hearings, I mean, that was my high school. That's what that was like. Oh yeah, it was a it was a boys' world, and we all went along with it. We went along with the jokes. We that's just the way the world, you know. It just what a warped sense of world it was with the, with the sexism and the and the boys' rule and the bad boy behavior and but you know that's that was normal to the extent that like it's only been really more in like my 40s and 50s looking back 
on my 20s, whereas like, wow, that was a really fucked up situation. Uh, it also is uh, some kind of sort of lewd or rude or just um, sexist remark made or, or a gesture or something like that. You know, it's kind of that you learn to just roll with it in a graceful way, not to call it out as bad behavior, just to kind of avoid that person or smile and find a way to engage with somebody else at the cocktail party or laugh it off. These are all like the tools that we learned to manage these, the sexism that was around us. And, and part one of the tools was acceptance. I think the world has changed now. I'm glad it's changed. I think for me, the challenge is to try to teach my daughter th- those tools and then some others about how to, you know, say, you know, that's, that's not okay. Yeah. I find parallels in the Me Too movement within the conversations about race. I mean, I yeah. think that women have had to put up with it just so that we wouldn't have to constantly have to be angry and mean. And at a certain point, it did come to a head with our society. Thank goodness. Yeah. And I'm sure it's the same way with racism that, you know, at a certain point, you're just going to make me so mad by all your aggressions, microaggressions, or blatant racism that I'm just going to blow my top. You have every right to, and it shouldn't happen in the first place. It's so hard sometimes. I'm curious, have your boys experienced racism? They have mostly experienced, let me think of the times. Oh, I remember a couple times like going into a market and having them go in advance ahead of me. Mm-hmm. Logan would go to the corner market on 6th mm-hmm. in California, and he'd want to get a candy bar or some chips. And I remember him going in front of me, and the guy's just like hovering over him. Mm-hmm. And then I walk in, and I you know, look at the guy, and I look at Logan, and I say, did you get to choose what you wanted? And the guy just kind of looked at me and then backed off. And it was just so obvious. It wasn't him saying anything. It was purely action. Logan did not notice it. I did. And Logan's heard friends say nigger. And he's confronted them. Not to him. They haven't called him that, but they'll use it in a way of terms, like they're cool. Which is, again, you have music that can be really explicit and says the word nigger like it's super cool and he will you know the kids will co-op it and use it and logan finds it offensive and thank goodness he will turn around and say something to someone you know what i don't like that do you realize that you're talking about black people and i'm a black person and i find find it offensive he will say that which i'm really proud of so that is so that's so interesting um so we've had this conversation because my kids like some really in my opinion, terrible music, <laughs> but you know, misogynistic, uh, mm-hmm. uh, definitely using the word nigger, um, just horrible. I find it offensive. So, but they're like, well, well, white people can't use the word nigger, but black people can't. I'm like, uh, you know what? This song is a horrible song and I don't want to hear that word. And I find it offensive. And they're like, well, that it's not it shouldn't you shouldn't find that offensive because they're they're saying it and it's okay for them to say that word anyway so we've the detente that we came to was that you can listen to that music privately 
I'm not going to tell you what you can and can't listen to, but you can't listen to that in the car or when I'm around because it's offensive to me. Right. Yeah. I won't, but I don't I, think that they would ever use that word to to describe somebody. Interesting that they say that only white people can use it because there is a lot no, of... only black people can use I'm it. I'm sorry. Only black people can use it. I know there is a lot of conversations going out there in the podcasting world about that word. And there are black people that don't like it either. They find it really insulting to their own race. I so, think it's horrible. Yeah. Well, I also don't want to hear about all the misogynistic, Me too. you know, sex and, you know, glorifying a lot of those. I mean, just that whole genre of music and it just, a lot of it glorifies sexism mm-hmm. and racism and drug culture and a lot of other things. That violence. Are, violence, uh, violence against women. Um, so anyway, there's so much in that music that I don't agree with, but I also don't agree with censoring what they listen to or don't listen to that's just a step too far that brad and i aren't willing to take at the same time we do try to talk about what's wrong with what they're saying yes exactly which is actually i think better than trying to censor it because you just can't censor the world out all the bad stuff in the world out your kids are gonna find out about it sooner or later and wonder what it why they never why didn't mom and dad talk to us about this? I mean, it is a perfect opportunity to talk about everything yeah. that you said. Yeah. Misogyny, racism, violence. It's, it's a great opportunity using music. Logan has said, but it's like art. I'm like, it is art, and you need to understand the context of it. But really, I mean, when he listens to rap, I, I, kind, of, I kind of laugh because... I look at him and say, that is not your life. Do you understand that? These people, some of these people have had really hard lives and are expressing it this way and you have not. So remember that. Right. Well, also some of the, some of the rappers uh, too, some of the songs are talking about sort of getting out of that life Mm -hmm. and what's wrong with that life. And that's what Jack's pointed out to me. He's like, yeah, but what he's saying is this is a terrible life. You know, this is a hellish life, uh, this vicious circle that I'm in with drugs and sex and more drugs and more sex and whatever. This is not healthy or happy. Right. Well, you know, this is interesting because when people usually indulge in, you know, too much sex and too many drugs or even violence, it's, there's a reason for it. And, you know, again, there, there might be a potential lead into, so why yeah. are they so wrapped up into this cycle you can talk about a little bit of the structure that creates that yeah interesting yeah that's a very good point what gives you a sense of hope well that story that i was telling about my daughter about my friend's daughter who had never experienced racism as an eighth grader as a brown skinned eighth grader was uh, to me i was like wow that's awesome so that that gave me some hope um, the fact that, that I feel like, you know, in the corporate world, things are changing with regard to, like I remember in my 20s, the big thing was sexual harassment training, and everybody had to go through sexual harassment tra- training. It was kind of a, you know, sort of a joke, but it was, you know, actually did help. And it's been a long time. And now all the organizations that I work with are going through diversity, equity, inclusion trainings, and Wonderful. changes in there. and. You know, things like women on the corporate boards and the, I don't remember exactly what it was, what the requirement was, but just 
people, groups, organizations, society, starting to hold the bad actors' feet to the fire on some of these issues. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion training is not just about race. It's also about economic, uh, socioeconomic biases and sexual and religious. So it, it covers, you know, a full gamut of the exclusionary practices that we unfortunately live with. So that gives me hope. The corporate world is starting to change on that and that will have effects. What worries me, just what is the potential for how our judicial system, whether it's going to support change or cement in the old ways. With today's Supreme Court, I worry a lot about some of the changes that are occurring, like with regard to affirmative action in college admissions. I mean, I'm not following every court case, or, but I do worry that these cases are going to go to the highest court and we don't have a bench today that's going to necessarily support the types of societal changes that we need to have in our laws mm-hmm. to protect people. Right. We need policy. We're, get, we're starting structurally with corporations being accountable and wanting to be responsible and good citizens yeah. in the world. And now we need policy and government. I mean, we have government laws in place for civil rights, but that doesn't mean that the actors that are executing these or enforcing these laws are there. Well, I mean, when we go to visit my parents in New Orleans, you know, they're still having arguments about whether Confederate statues should stay up. And I hear white family members say like, you know, that's history and and they pull the the history card out and it's like do you know do you have any idea how offensive that is to somebody who is on the other side of that history? I don't think it should be erased because they not erased. We can't erase not, it. We we should it's not glorified. Glorified. If anything, we should be taking them down and really educating the public as to why that we did a horrible wrong and we need to correct it. And this is part of our process of correcting it and acknowledging that we made a mistake and this is kind of repairing that mistake. One person at a time, one company at a time. (laughs) One, yeah, one state at a time. (laughs) One state at a time. Well, no, it has to happen faster than that, honestly. I mean, that's not acceptable anymore. I don't agree with that um, in the sense that it's that's that's a hopeful way to end it, but it that that's just that's letting ourselves off the hook too easily. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. I agree. I do think that just hearing the fact that your company is having diversity training, I think it's really important. Well, I really appreciate you coming today and sharing this experience with me, and hopefully, we have a little bit more to go on. I am taking to heart what you're saying about talking to kids about race. I am. I am really working on it. I'm every day I write about it. I'm not publishing, but I'm I'm writing about it in a ways that I can put it out there into the world. And I really appreciate your company doing the training and that you're taking it in and reflecting. Yeah. I think that my job right now is to listen and to try to understand. And then maybe I'll I'll be a better teacher. No, that's a great point. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Meredith. All right, thank you. All right. This is fun. (laughs) I wish we could talk longer. That pretty much wraps it up for the day. We will see you in a couple weeks on the next Awkwardness and Grace.